0: Hello everyone, Uh, welcome to Skype a Scientist Live. Today uh, on this uh, beautiful rainy Sunday morning in Philadelphia, we are learning all about Roman toilets. So we are, uh, this whole week, going to be talking about archaeology. Uh, We've got five archaeology presentations over the next five days, so I hope you are ready to learn about some super old stuff, something that I know almost nothing about. Uh, So today we're joined by uh, Anne Olga Koloski-Ostro. She will be talking to us today about Roman toilets. Um, And with that, please, everyone, submit all the questions that you have using our Q&A function at the bottom. We're gonna have about a 15 minute presentation from Anne, and then uh, we'll launch into our questions. So with that, I'm going to hand it over uh, to Anne.
1: Hello everyone, thank you so much for joining me today. It's it's a beautiful day here in Boston, and I'm very happy to be here, and I wanna give my thanks to the AIA for having me. Um, Just to tell you in one or two sentences about myself, I am a classical archaeologist, I've worked in Italy, in Greece, in Jordan, all over North Africa, but my specialty is really in recent years become Pompeii and Herculaneum, so a lot of what I will tell you is based on those two ancient sites in Italy. Now let me see how I can move my, ah, here we go. (laughs) So together, we're going to explore what we can learn about Roman daily life from toilet research. Everyone always wants to talk about toilets. They seem to bring out the the middle school personas in all of us. Like the headline I saw a few years ago in a local newspaper. It went like this. Police precinct toilet stolen, colon, not much to go on. So I've been involved in toilet research for about the last 15 years and I have some interesting findings to share with you. After I organized a Roman toilet workshop in 2007, and you see here some of the international scholars who work on toilets and sanitation actually sitting on a Roman toilet, I published a book with Gemma Janssen and Eric Mormon, called Roman Toilets Their Archaeology and Cultural History. And that book acknowledged that more than any other facet of Mediterranean archaeology, toilets have always fascinated legions of non specialists, while specialists themselves have tended to avoid the topic as taboo or simply as too dirty and risky. But I, on the other hand, am quite gratified that, that my reputation as the queen of latrines is getting stronger and stronger. My next single author book, The Archaeology of Sanitation, um, is a book that is that is specifically uh, on uh, these matters of toilet research, digs into them much more deeply. And I have a new book that will come out probably in 20. 21 on just the toilets of the city of Rome. So let's figure out together what really went on in Roman toilets We'll work on two topics together in the short talk. I'm giving you Topic one will be Roman urban sanitation itself. That is did the Romans even have such a concept and Topic two will be toilet facts What specifics can we say about Roman toilets and what kind of evidence exists, where is that evidence, and what does it tell us? So, topic number one, sanitation. Piercing noises, rotting food, precariously loaded wagons, uncivil crowds, uncomfortable heat, sweat, mud, dust, dirt. These would have been common daytime annoyances on the streets of Rome in the first century CE. And while we have a hard time picturing such chaos from the tourist site of Pompeii, look at it in this pristine view of the Via della Bondanza today, the Roman writer Juvenal tells us in his Satire 3 that even greater dangers lurked on the streets. Besides drunks and muggers, the common encounters, a Roman nightwalker, would also have to avoid broken jars hurled down from open windows of the tenement buildings, or worse, the unsavory contents of chamber pots, a big splash of urine and excrement on that white toga, not the perfect end to an evening out. The fact is that Juvenal gives us a pretty unpleasant image of the sanita- sanitary and security conditions of ancient Rome. So here you see me several years ago mucking about in the great sewer of Rome and I always advertise my university Brandeis wherever I go. Uh, this is called the cloaca maxima and I'm down there trying to figure out how accurate Juvenal's literary description really is. Was Juvenal serious or was he merely trying to be funny? Getting to the truth about sanitary practices is not so easy, but archeological evidence combined with literature can be informative and eye-opening. But the study of toilets and human excretory habits has had several barriers to overcome, and one of them is the taboo of the subject itself. Well, uh, partly because it's such an unmentionable subject. The author of one recent study on latrines who wanted to demonstrate the communal nature of Roman toilets felt he had to blindfold his actor colleagues when he published this photo of the latrine in the cyclops baths in Duga, Tunisia. He didn't want anyone to be embarrassed. When taboos are put aside, however, it becomes apparent that Roman sanitary practice involves many barely known Roman habits and traditions. We can learn not only what toilets look like and how they function, but what Roman attitudes were towards excrement, hygiene, the level of privacy various facilities had, and about Ro- the Romans' own taboos. We must constantly be aware, however, from our, be, uh, be aware of our own biased views on these matters because no one is free from his or her own cultural values regarding sanitation. Here you see the forum latrine of Pompeii, the seats are, were right along these, these struts, but of course they were in wood and they've all disappeared. This latrine was unfinished at the time that Mount Vesuvius erupted in 79 CE. The first archaeologists in the 18th and 19th centuries who came across such toilets seemed to have an immediate ambivalence towards them. On the one hand, they looked so similar to their own, they didn't even seem worth mentioning. Certainly, they were not expressions of high cultural achievements of Roman society. On the other hand, as early as the 18th century, a few scholars did recognize the existence of toilets. And here you see two large toilets, one over here and one over here in the Mckellum, the marketplace of, of Pozzuoli, ancient Puteoli, and uh, slowly gave them a small place in the scholarly literature. But several excavators at the time remained blinded by Victorian taboos and called these large toilets in the McKellum medicinal steam baths, while other toilets were labeled prison installations or even hydraulic lifts. No one wanted to admit that they were actual toilets. In the early 20th century, attitudes gradually were changing and not surprisingly, a doctor a Danish physician called Holger Miergend was among the first to point out the importance of toilet research. This is a picture of a single seat toilet in the house of of Octavius Quarto at Pompeii. Miergend's articles were devoted completely to water supply and sanitation in the town of Pompeii. And for the first time, he made analyses of the total ensemble of toilets, drains and sewers and pipes, which you see here under the sidewalk of a house outside of a Pompeian uh, house. During the large-scale excavations of the fascist era in Italy, dozens of toilets came to light, like this grand forum latrine in Ostia, excavated by Guido Calza, And it served as a fascist demonstration in the late 1930s of how a Roman toilet functioned and was supposed to prove to Italians that they had descended from an impressively civilized ancient people. Many years later, where there was a huge dearth of toilet research, Alex Scobie, an ancient historian and classicist from New Zealand, wrote his seminal article in 1986 called Slums, Sanitation and Mortality in the Roman World, in which he listed the sad realities that trapped hundreds of thousands of impoverished Romans in urban squalor. Since archaeologists had rarely concerned themselves, either with latrines or with sewers, and here again is the interior of the great Cloaca Maxima in Rome, despite the impressive remains of these structures in many places, overviews of Roman daily life remain deficient on sanitary matters. Scobie concluded, not surprisingly, from the little evidence that he had available to him in the 1980s, that the inhabitants of Rome lived in an extremely unsanitary environment and experienced short, often violent lives. Then Richard Neudecker, he's a German archeologist, his first book length manuscript in 1994, devoted to Roman latrine, latrines called the proct latrinen, the luxury latrines. These were very beautifully and well-appointed latrines built in the late first and second centuries CE. And you see here in this slide, the one of them, it's called the triangular latrine in Ostia. Anyway, Neudecker concluded uh, that the physical care of the body, including bodily evacuations, was a process taught to Roman males from a very early age to prepare them for their stations in life. So now let's move to topic two. Well, actually, I'll keep that slide on for a bit more. Topic two, toilet facts. First of all, Roman toilets must be studied within their entire urban infrastructures. We must seek answers to a whole new range of questions, like who built them? Were public latrines social gathering places or not? Who used them? Men, women, both, slaves, Roman elites, Roman plebs? Were they hygienic improvements on earlier provisions for basic bodily needs, Or were they actually breeding grounds for disease and foul smell that did little to improve dismal urban conditions? Perhaps we can get to some of these questions afterwards, but the main fact to remember right now is that the study of toilets lead to Rome by some unusual roads. So in towns like Herculaneum and Pompeii, we find single seat cesspit toilets in almost every private house, like this one in front of you from a house in Herculaneum. Again, the wooden seat is gone. It would have been placed right over this barricade, and here's the, the cesspit down below. Today, by the way, we can now count just over 200 toilets in Pompeii and another 60 from Herculaneum scoby did not know most of these toilets and their existence would definitely have affected his grim conclusions why weren't these toilets connected to sewer lines roman sewers it turns out had no traps so who could know what would climb up into a house from the sewer through the toilet the second century writer elian for example tells a great story about a huge hungry octopus who climbed up through the toilet into the house pantry of a Spanish merchant who lived in Pozzuoli, Puteoli near Naples, and that octopus ate all the merchant's pickled fish. Did not end well for the octopus, but I'm sure the owner of that house was regretting that he had a toilet connected to a local sewer, which might seem completely counterintuitive to us today. In country villas of the elite, like this villa of Oplantis on the Bay of Naples that you see here, we find multi-seater latrines were sometimes built along with more private one-seater uh, affairs for the elite inhabitants of such villas. This multi-seater toilet at Oplantis was probably for slaves and visitors and was flushed very efficiently by water from the washing basin. You can see the wash corner of the wasp basin here, and the water would have come down, run through the the sponge gutter, and then fallen down into the the sewer. And this line in the wall shows you the level of the seats, the wooden seats that have now vanished. Um, The contents of cesspit latrines in houses like this one were likely deposited directly into the indoor, col- um, into the, the outdoor rather, uh, peristyle colonnaded gardens, which would have made for some really smelly garden parties. While wealthy Romans probably preferred chamber pots to all of these types of privy, public toilets could accommodate from one to more than 100 people in the same facility and toilet technology is equally diverse. But if you learn to observe and not just look, the evidence can show us a lot of fascinating details. And here's a detail about privacy. This is a shop from Herculaneum and you'll see there's a little toilet in the corner and they have built this little barricade uh, right in the corner of the shop. The little window in that barricade shows you that the owner gave himself a bit of privacy for his toilet, but he could watch out that little window and look for shoplifters while he was in there. So connections to sewer lines could vary from city to city, while shapes of toilet rooms also varied, the distances between seats in public toilets, the heights of the seats, and The presence of this sponge channel that you see at the feet of my friend Jonathan here, that uh, sponge channel never varied. We can talk about sponge sticks later, but I believe that this trench was for washing off the sponge at the end of a short stick that was kept in most public latrines as a cleaning device for the toilet itself. This feature was probably an improvement uh, in better equipped toilets built in the 2nd and 1st century CE because it's a later addition to toilet technology. Certainly, use of public toilets contributed to cleaning up filth from the streets of Roman cities, but it must have taken decades to change old customs and to convince people actually to use public toilets instead of side alleys or gutters. You see here an inscription from a tavern in Pompeii. The inscription is right over here. It says kakator kawemalu, that is crapper, kakator kawemalu, beware of doing a bad thing maybe, presumably crapping in public. The goddess Fortuna, and here she is in all her, her crimson glory, is watching over this man who's squatting here uh, doing his duty. So to wrap up, a Roman public toilet can display sophisticated manipulation of water, expensive building materials, artistic embellishments, and considerable planning strategies for some light, some privacy, and some air circulation. At the same time, in over 400 years, Little changed in their overall design, and most particulars remained absolutely standard. The remains themselves can tell us a great deal if we look closely. I hope I've shown you that, you that to enter the field of Roman sanitation, we must be ready to give up our 21st century attitudes and not read the evidence through the lens of our own prejudices. What is dirty to us may have been clean and healthy to the Romans. We, where we practice religion is not necessarily where the Romans did, as Fortuna can follow you right into the toilet. We must be ready to accept the unexpected at every turn. I thank you and I welcome your questions.
0: That was super interesting. Thank you so much. Um, I, think we should remove the the screen share so that Erin gets bigger for the for the question perfect thank you oh man okay we already have plenty of questions coming in so so my first question is so you've got these kind of two options of toilet right you've got the one where pretty much just your excrement goes down and stays there and then you have one where it goes down into the sewer is that correct
1: uh, yes there are multi-seat toilets though that are also just cesspits like okay. the one in the in the private villas they didn't go into any sewer they're just a, a lot of excrement is falling into a cesspit and that excrement is being dug is dug out you know every so often and oh, okay. used as fertilizer that
0: was going to be my question what the heck happens to it okay it gets dug out that's I'm glad that is not my job. Yikes. Uh, okay, so our first question comes from uh, David, age 11. How exactly were Roman toilets built?
1: David, I saw your question up there just before I got into my talk. You know, they were built the way everything else in ancient Rome was built, with with bricks and mortar and stones and concrete. And uh, somebody picked a place for it, cited the the spot for it whether it was inside of a building or or something disconnected from a building and then dug a hole if it's a cesspit a deep deep hole and lined it with stones and then built a little wooden seat for it because most of these house toilets had wooden seats presumably that's why we don't have those seats anymore that's why toilets are hard to recognize when you walk into a Pompeian house you can't really find them because the seats are all gone all you can see is a hole in the floor and you have to look closely for those and often those 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 house toilets interestingly enough were built inside kitchens which seems counterintuitive to us I mean my god you want your toilet right next to the place where you prepare your food but the, the, the Romans have a very different idea about this. You can use that toilet to dump your slop water in. It's like a drain. They don't have sinks, so they have a toilet to throw, throw their uh, dirty water away. And who knows, it, it kind of counteracts, maybe the cooking stew counteracts the stench from the toilet. But the flies and the other problems certainly would have contributed to health conditions. So I hope that helps you, David. It's not really any different from any other Roman constructions.
0: Great. Um, our next question comes from Barbara. Um, do Roman toilets still work today?
1: I don't think there's one actual ancient toilet that anyone is working today. You know. Barbara, as I mentioned, early excavators wouldn't even acknowledge what they were, what these structures were. They called them everything but toilets in the beginning. But now, today, with modern archaeological science uh, behind us, we don't only want to know the answer to David's question, "How was the toilet built? We want to know what's in the toilet. So we take meticulous care to excavate the excrement itself. It's incredible what excrement can tell you about uh, who's who was using the toilet what they were eating what their diet was was and if it's a slave toilet their diet is not going to consist of the great uh, bones steak bones chicken bones that the elite toilet is going to have their their toilet is going to have excrement that has bugs and creatures in it because they're using bad flour for their bread and stones and whatnot so um no none of them are currently in use but in some places you are allowed as a tourist to sit on them just for your famous photograph but honestly i don't think in roman times you would have wanted to spend much time in a roman toilet
0: for sure yeah cool um the next question is how did you get interested in this topic when did you decide that you would you're like okay queen of latrines that's for me that's what i want to be
1: Well, I think it really started when I was a little girl. Honestly, I never thought when I was a little girl that this is where my life would go. But I had a very beloved Uncle Nick, who was a garbage truck driver in New York City. And I used to spend a lot of time riding around in Uncle Nick's garbage truck to all the landfills around New York. I was fascinated by what modern New Yorkers threw away. That was one part of my interest in the dark underbelly. Of the city, the infrastructure of New York City, which is a a city in itself underneath the streets of the city. And then I had another uncle who lived in Boston who was a plumber, and when I visited him, he took me, when I was five, six, seven, eight years old, underneath these fantastic Boston Victorian houses where I got to see the copper plumbing and these unbelievable bathtubs and fancy toilets, which I I grew up in a house with a cesspit in the Berkshires. I didn't have a flush toilet. We had a cesspit toilet, which I hated. So I couldn't wait till the day where someday we'd have a real flush toilet and raise ourselves out of what in that, in my culture, was considered, you know, the the poor folks had cesspit toilets. But I think in ancient Rome, having a cesspit toilet was not a thing poor people had. It was a very... It was considered more advanced in some cases than people who connected their toilets to the sewer because of the negative aspects of connecting to a sewer. So it's my Uncle Nick and my Uncle Ted and my garbage collection past and my plumbing past that just kept uh, getting me to look at Roman cities in new ways.
0: That's awesome, I love that uh, that origin story. That's wonderful. Um, Grace has a question. Is there evidence of cover materials used in these cesspits like uh, peat moss or sawdust to mask the smell or keep flies from getting in there?
1: Yeah, ash is another thing. There's a, There's not a lot of examples of this because unfortunately for so many, really centuries, uh, toilets weren't considered serious parts of an archaeological dig, no, because nobody wants to talk about them or dig in them. Although I have to tell you that 2,500-year-old excrement does not stink and is not obnoxious to handle, so don't be thinking of it as the worst, uh, the worst field of archaeology. But yes, there is some evidence, especially in places like England along Hadrian's Wall, where the the uh, the the environment is moist enough to have preserved some of those covering materials. You might throw a, a, a handful of sulfur on top of a layer of excrement or, or ash from the wood fire. I'm sure maybe that's another reason toilets are in the kitchen. You could take the wood, the wood ash and just dump it into the toilet and keep it relatively stench free and um, a less, less wet and yucky. So that's a good question.
0: That is a great question. Yeah, thank you for asking that, Grace. Um, next question is, um, can you tell us a little bit more about the Cloaca in Rome? Was it connected through the entire city? Like where exactly did it go?
1: Yeah, well, it, you know, it it is, I didn't mention this to you, the Cloaca goes back really to the Etruscans. It's, a, it's at like 500 C- BCE that it was first constructed. But what you all need to understand is the Cloaca maxima was not constructed in order to take sewage from people's houses. What it was constructed, it runs underneath the Roman Forum and it has various branches, later branches to it. It's not, it certainly doesn't cover the entire city of Rome today. It's a small area of Rome from the Tiber to the extent of, the, of Rome's original seven hills so it's within the Aurelian wall, Aurelian's wall for sure. Anyway, 500 BCE, and it was really built just to remove standing water from streets. It was a way, when heavy rains come in the winter time. it was a way to have drains that took that water away from the city streets and out into the Tiber. And, you know, whether the Romans were terribly savvy about oh yeah standing water is bad and it's potential plague uh <laughs> territory they didn't have germ disease they didn't understand those things right. but they could certainly see that stagnant water standing in the street was not a pleasant thing and uh, i think the etruscans were aware of that in urban design from as early as 500 bce
0: sounds good Um, Our next question comes from Logan, age six. When did modern plumbing as we see it today start showing up in history?
1: Oh, that's a good question, Logan. I mean, I think it's a slowly developing thing over all of those centuries. I mean, it's not really until the 19th century probably when germ theory develops that people directly connect human excrement with the possibility of spreading plagues and disease and how important it is to rid excrement from human habitation let's say and whether or not our choice to dump it into water systems was a wise one or not is still an open question because uh, it, it there's a lot of problems with how much water we use to get rid of our excrement as opposed to the romans who collected it in their cesspits and used it Way out in the agricultural world, so I guess my answer would be, you know, when, when, in terms of modern sanitary infrastructure, you'd have to really think about the the 19th century.
0: Sounds good. Um, let's see. So, in the communal stalls, were there, or in the communal toilets, were there stalls separating each seat like we have today, or was it just a communal experience?
1: It was. A communal experience, there are no separations, and but here's a couple of things. I mean, people ask me, so did men and women sit next to each other? You know, I don't think so. I, I just think I know enough about Roman society from literature to be able to tell you that I doubt women ever went into a public facility. They were placed often near fora or public areas where men would frequent. And men, remember, were not wearing pants as we do today. They were wearing tunics and togas, so that provides a, a significant amount of privacy right there. You sit on a toilet with your toga wrapped around your your body, and no one can see anything. So yes, you're sitting right close to someone, but you can't. You're not exposing yourself. Right. Um, so chances are. Although I, I wonder how clean the seats were, you know how when you stood up, was your toga still white, or were you getting other people's you know dirty excrement on your toga? I, I think there's a lot of uncomfortableness about it. So 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 if you were an elite Roman, that that is someone of wealth and status, you might you might have preferred to have your slave bring a chamber pot along to the forum with you and just go in the chamber pot and not set foot in those public toilets. But, but the other, the people who are using them are probably the shopkeepers, the, you know, the other lesser elite Roman males who are wandering around there. And if a woman did go into those toilets, they would have been very low status women, prostitutes, slave girls, messenger girls, not, not the daughters and wives of Roman patrons.
0: Right. All right. Sounds good. Um, the next question is: uh, Did the cesspit toilets in the private homes in Pompeii and Herculaneum have any type of vents, like outhouses do today?
1: What co- I don't even know that outhouses today have vents. You mean
0: there's like okay, so I'm thinking of like the the um, cesspit toilets that I see in state parks in Pennsylvania. Like there will be some something about like different elevation in the vents will create airflow kind of like a gopher mound or a or a prairie dog
1: uh yeah. tunnel i it's not something i've encountered in my studies of the of the cesspits in roman houses for sure i can, you know one weekend several years ago my dear brother invited me to upstate new york but didn't tell me why he was inviting me to his hunting cabin up there the uh-huh. job of the weekend was to clean out the cesspit toilet and he thought he thought it was funny that his latrine sister should uh-huh. come up there and help him. And he thought it would teach me a lot of things about latrine construction. So up I went and uh, we dug this latrine. And it was a disgusting job because it wasn't ancient excrement we were digging out of there. But, you know, I don't even remember seeing anything like a vent in that toilet. That was a you know, pretty modern, like... 10 15 years ago it was built years ago it was built yeah so i'm sorry i don't know about venting i don't think there were any such vents in ancient toilets sounds good
0: um the next question um could you tell us more about that sponge because it seems super unhygienic um so yeah (laughs) oh we lost erin oh let's wait a second
1: yeah there she is she's back all right cool Yeah, the sponge, you know, that is a great question. Who asked that? That was from Shireen. Shireen, that's a good question. It it is a problematic question, and I'm not even sure we can say that every Roman toilet that has that channel at the feet of the toilet definitely confirms that sponges on sticks were used there. I will tell you that there is an ancient text from which we... There are a couple of ancient texts but the most vivid and and horrific of them gives us the the idea that there were sponge sticks in toilets and this is a text by the roman writer Seneca who's a writer of the first century uh, CE and he's not really writing about toilets or sponge sticks at all he's writing it's a philosophical tract he's writing and he's impressed by a german gladiator a German person who's been forced into slavery and has to fight in the gladiator ring, and he's about to be taken into the Colosseum and die. And but he he's doesn't want to face that death. So in a moment of uh, weakness, he asks the guard, "Can you just let me go to the toilet before I go to the arena?" and the guard thinking, well, you know, what's he going to do in the toilet? Sure, go ahead, go into the toilet. He goes into the toilet, and the text says he picked up the sponge, the the stick with a sponge uh, tied to the end of it, and he shoved it down his throat and killed himself rather than go into the amphitheater. So he chose his own way to die. He was about to die anyway, but he preferred to kill himself, And Seneca is, what Seneca is impressed about is his own strength, that he, that he saw his own way to die. So it's a horrible story about a suicide and a suicide in the worst possible way. And it gives us the topos, the so-called original idea of a sponge tied to a stick. Now, in Rome, in Pompeii, in Herculaneum, we haven't found one fragment of sponge in any toilets anywhere there. So, you know, and we don't have any literary references to a major sponge trade. You would think there would have been, had to have been a huge collection of sponges, natural sponges from the Mediterranean in order for sponges tied to sticks to be the common toilet paper of ancient Rome. So I think in some toilets, in some places, in some times, sponges tied to sticks might have been used and we have a little bit of archaeological evidence from England from some toilets excavated again way up north near the forts of of Hadrian's wall. Fragments of sponge found in the excavation of the cesspits. But other than that, Romans must have used a variety of things. They probably used old rags, shells, leaves, their fingers, There were lots of other ways to clean yourself. However, that topos, which is such a a story you'll probably never forget and you'll have nightmares about it, is the the story that gives us that hint. But in any case, that little trench at the base of so many toilet seats suggests a cleaning place for something, maybe rags or whatever you were using to wipe down the marble seats uh, would have needed that water in that little trench.
0: Sounds good. Um, the next question from Claire is a great one. You mentioned that males were taught at a young age about how they should be going to the bathroom. How is this known, and why doesn't that apply to women? Is it because women <laughs> weren't written about, or because they didn't get taught?
1: Yeah, that's good. That that uh, phrase I can't. Re- I can't, I would give you the exact reference, but I can tell you it comes from medical writers of the second century. I'm guessing I got that out of Galen, who's the second century. Uh, doctor writing um, medical texts for elite Roman males. And one, one of the things Galen tells us is how men's genitals were bound up when they were little babies to try to make them more stoic and straight and grow up with their heads held high and their bodies always as pure as possible. There's a whole regime that the medical writers of the second century suggest to male elite Roman Romans. And you're, you're absolutely right. Women don't matter in this discussion. Uh, they, they're not a, a discussed this way in the medical texts and they wouldn't have been using those public toilets anyway. Uh, so they're just not, they're kind of like not important in the discussion bummer as that is to us.
0: Yeah, it's a bummer for us. Okay, sounds good. Uh we our next question's from Jen. Uh this is a fun question. Did Roman children use toilets or did they wear diapers or something else completely?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think we know. We we have some uh we have a, some wonderful vase paintings that go back to ancient Greece that show putting putting a a kid, a little baby, into sort of like a chamber pot with little footholes, a ceramic vessel that they would be seated on to do their business. We don't have any such apparatus from Roman excavations, at least not that I'm aware of, I know in, in my own childhood, we had a cesspit toilet with different size holes. There was one for the little kids, a medium one for, for my mom, and a bigger one for my dad, three seats in a row. So it was a community. We never were in there together, but there were sizes for each of us. So, uh, But I never saw that in a Roman toilet. I've only seen the standard, whatever it is, 30 centimeter round holes. There's no d- differentiation allowing something for a child. So either you would have held your child over such a hole, or you would have just um, told the kid go out in the garden and do your business. <laughs> not, I I don't know, or, or or use a chamber pot. Yes, they did have chamber pots, so you probably had your kid squat in a chamber pot. Um, and then there's the question of, well, urine perhaps was sometimes sold to to fullers, to cleaner, dry cleaners, <laughs> who came around and collected clean urine from houses to be used in the cleaning process of clothing because urine has ammonia in it, and that's a great cleaning agent. But you'd have to be sure that urine was really clean. You don't want urine with excrement in it because that's not going to do much for your, yeah. your clothing. Right. So I guess my answer is, Thank you for that great uh, question, and uh, it's something maybe I should explore a little more. But I don't know of any. I, I think we know almost nothing about the the lives of children in ancient Rome. We have so much more to learn. What because the, they weren't even considered people really, you know? They're they're not really people until they reach us, uh, the age of twelve or thirteen, and then suddenly Romans start noticing them. Not their mothers, their mothers would have noticed them, but I mean, the society in general isn't really paying any attention to their needs, certainly not out in the public world.
0: Wow, sounds good. So we try to keep these sessions to be right about 45 minutes, and uh, we have a couple questions for you before we wrap up. Um, The first question that we ask everybody who participates in Skype a Scientist Live is, if you had one thing that you could tell the entire world about archeology, span what would it be? (laughs)
1: Uh, You know, I saw those questions and I forgot to come up with an an answer to them. So I'm going to do this right off the top of my head. We'll see what comes out. One thing I would want everyone to know about archaeology. Yes. Well, it is an endlessly fascinating subject. And uh, almost anything you do or think and touch uh, during the course of your daily life, might have a way in which to turn into a fascinating research question uh, in the world of archaeology. And I myself am so moved by the Archaeological Institute's own uh, public statement on archaeology that says archaeology is a way, of course, to understand the past, but it's also a way to inform the present, and it's also a way to inspire the future. And that's what I love really most about it.
0: That's beautiful. Um, The next question is, if you had, again, the attention of the entire world, and you can tell them one thing about anything, it can be as serious, big picture, or silly and insignificant as you'd like.
1: Well, I guess it would be that that remark I made about uh, the difference between looking and observing because I think this affects everything in our lives. It affects, this is a such a troubled world we're in right now. And in order to, a, a world of COVID-19, a world of great disruption in our political climate, um, lots of concerns about the future of academia and the future of everybody's job and whether you're gonna have a paycheck, kids in school or being, or learning at home. So I guess I would say Uh, try to learn to do more than just look but to look closely to think about the decision you're making about something is it coming out of a an internal prejudice or is it coming out of the way what you're observing is really a truth that needs to be followed
0: that's great thank you um okay is there anywhere that we can find you on social media anything you'd like to plug before we wrap up
1: Oh, uh, you know, I'm kind of not on social media. People keep telling me I should be. <laughs> I'm half, I have one half foot in the door in academia.edu. But any news about me usually comes on the website of my department at Brandeis. And I am head of the Division of Humanities. I mount a newsletter for the Division of Humanities at Brandeis. If you want to read that newsletter, it's always there on the Brandeis website. Awesome. So, thank you all for these great questions
0: and thank you for thank you for sharing your knowledge with us today this was super super cool um and aaron thank you for signing for us as always um and everybody home tomorrow at noon eastern we are going to be talking about leprosy in the lab and looking at really old skeletons um, to kind of figure that whole thing out so we hope to see you all there please bring your curiosity with you and we'll see you back here tomorrow Thank you again, Anne, for sharing your knowledge with us and Erin for signing. We really appreciate your time. And thank you, everyone, for coming.